Thank you, Pastor Randy. Good morning, church. Uh, as Randy prayed, we'll be together in Acts. So if you would turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 1. And uh, any parents who have kids up through fifth grade, if you'd like them to go to some age-specific teaching, we offer that now. There'll be somebody out on the patio who could help you uh, figure out where your kids will be going. We started last week in the book of Acts, and we'll be continuing that uh, this morning through much of the rest of the year. If you would like to read ahead, you can certainly uh, be doing that, knowing we'll, we'll be in the subsequent weeks going into Acts. So if you're using a Bible in the, uh, from the chairs, you can turn to page uh, 530. We'll be on page 530 in those Bibles. Um, by the time we reach Acts chapter 1, verse 12, it's been a dizzying couple of months for the disciples. And because there's so many of us that perhaps are new to the Scriptures, I wanted to take a few minutes this morning to fill in what the last two months had looked like for the disciples. As an annual festival had come near, Jesus roughly two months prior to this moment, had entered the city of Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna. People, as Jesus came into the city, declared Him to be the Messiah, the one they had been waiting for and anticipating. And as Jesus taught in the temple, He demonstrated a power and an authority that was very different than what they were used to. The religious elite were refuted. Jesus ministered in grace and truth. That's who He is and what He does. It remains what we need today. Amen? But very quickly, that same religious elite managed to expose sin in Judas's own heart and to turn people against Jesus. Judas sold out his location, and under the cloak of darkness, they came and arrested Jesus. They accused him of blasphemy. They put him through an illegal trial that was really more like a lynching than anything else. And then a few hours later, Jesus faced a Roman in which the question was, would he be put to death? As you very likely will know, that is what happened. Every one of Jesus' followers in those hours gave up in fear. They ran, all of them, to a person. Even Peter, who we'll see this morning, standing up and serving as a leader, said he never knew Jesus. Jesus faced a mob. He was beaten, mocked to the very edge of his life. And then he was walked outside of the city of Jerusalem, nailed to a cross where he faced an agonizing, suffocating death as he hung there. Now, even though Jesus had explicitly told all of His followers, here's what's going to happen, 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 it was so beyond what they expected that they simply couldn't grasp it. Their expectations were that Jesus would be a political Messiah. And so, death, resurrection, ascension, and that being the means of taking His throne were simply inconceivable to them. And so as Jesus lay in a tomb, for three days the disciples hunkered down in fear. They had staked everything on Him. And it seemed as though everything Jesus promised them had come untrue. But then, early one Sunday morning, the news of resurrection began to spread. Some women came to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body, and yet He wasn't there. He had risen. And then Jesus just started showing up. And He, he seemed the same, and yet also different. He was recognizable, and yet dazzling. More than simply resuscitated. This Jesus had come back from the grave in such a way that now He had a resurrection body. He serves as the prototype 
of what every follower of Jesus Christ will receive. You see, he conquered the judgment of death by taking that upon himself. And in so doing, he conquered death itself. Now at first, like all of us, the disciples struggled to believe. And this isn't what they expected. Nobody was looking for this as the plan. But as Jesus took their own Bibles, their Old Testament, and began to fill in the gaps for them, they slowly came to see this is the decisive center of the kingdom of God, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so for a little over a month, Jesus would pop in, give a speech, say hi, have a meal, and leave, only to show up and do it again. But then as we saw in the beginning of Acts last week, Jesus showed up one final time, and He told His disciples, I want you to wait in the city of Jerusalem. I'm going to send my power, my presence through the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, if some of those things are new to you and you want to learn more about them, I would encourage you to take that Bible from underneath the seat in front of you if you don't have one. Go to the book in the Bible called Luke. You can turn to Luke 19 and simply read five chapters, 19 through 24, and you'll see all of those things that we've just talked about. But for all of us, can you suspend what you know about the rest of the story for a moment? And just imagine what it would have felt like to be one of Jesus' followers at this point in Acts chapter 1. They have swung the gamut of emotions from elation to ruin and back again to elation. And I imagine many days were filled with both of those extremes. All of these things took place in less than than the period of time we've been living in 2020. And yet, the world has never been the same. These two months, we're still living in light of. They affect every moment of every day. They're the decisive moment in human history. So what did Jesus' followers do between that that moment he left and went to heaven, and what we'll see next week when the Holy Spirit came. That comprised a period of 10 days. What happened between Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit coming? Well, that period of time is what occupies our passage this morning. Now, frankly, there are some passages in the Bible that as we we open our scriptures, we read it through one time, we have an emotional experience, the application is readily obvious, we feel very happy we chose to spend time in the scriptures. There are lots of passages like that. This isn't one of them. This is one of those passages you read and you are left wondering, I don't okay, and then you move on. And yet, as a church that's committed to working our way passage by passage through the Bible, we are given the gift from God, therefore, of trying to grapple with things that don't seem readily applicable. And as I've worked on this the last few weeks, I've come to uh, very much appreciate what's here. And I hope you will today as well. Let's start in verse 12 of Acts chapter one. Then they, that, that they is the disciples, the apostles, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. 
all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. One of the most important things we can note from this paragraph is that the apostles and the disciples waited obediently. Back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus explicitly told them, wait, stay in Jerusalem, don't go anywhere else. You see, it's very likely few, if any, of these followers of Jesus actually lived in the city of Jerusalem. They were there because they were there to recognize Passover and then go back home. And yet Jesus told them to stay, to wait until the Holy Spirit would come. Because it's only when people are fueled by the the power of God within that we're actually able to serve as witnesses. And they hadn't yet received the Spirit in that way. Remember, at this particular moment in Acts chapter 1, there are no New Testament churches yet. You couldn't go to Jerusalem, Google churches, and find any. They didn't exist. But Jesus said, wait, so they waited. In this early infancy moment, the New Testament people of God chose to obey Jesus by waiting. Obedience is always essential for God's people. Now notice who made up that group of waiters. This group of obedient Jesus followers. I'd like to draw your attention especially to two sets of people within the group. First, the apostles, and second, the women. First, let's consider the apostles. Jesus began his public ministry by calling out 12 people to follow him. If you're interested in reading more about that, you can go back to Luke and look at Luke chapter 6, where Jesus chose these apostles. These men became his constant followers. They were with him all the time for three years. Over the course of Jesus' itinerant ministry, they learned so much about the kingdom of God from Jesus. Now, one thing that's especially critical to understand as we work our way through the book of Acts is these apostles were given by Jesus a very distinctive authority. If you want to read something about that authority, you can look at Luke chapter 9, where Jesus sets them apart to declare the truth, to heal, and to cast out demons. As the rest of the New Testament unfolds, we'll find just how significant these apostles were. We see that the church, in fact, was built on the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, and that the Scripture was written by them and their associates. It's important for us to know today that their role was unique. We no longer have any need for apostles. Their work is done. While there are no apostles today, their ministry continues. It continues every time you open your Bible. When you read the New Testament, you're reading the record of their teaching. You're hearing their witness to Jesus Christ. But here in Acts chapter 1, their work was just beginning. It may be concluded now, but it's just starting here in the very beginning of Acts. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why we don't designate leaders as apostles today. There is no pastor walking around that simply by virtue of touching his shirt, you can be healed. There is no ongoing writing of Scripture. There is no unique authority that a leader has that's above everybody else. Why? There are no more apostles. That work has concluded. But it's clear from these verses that the original 12 are very important. 
And as verses 18, 19, and 20 recount, the 12 were now 11. Judas had rejected Jesus, sold him out, and abandoned his post as an apostle. Now, we'll come back to that later because it's very important to the story. But as you look at verse 14 again, notice the phrase that Luke simply gives us the women. Another noteworthy part of the group that was praying and waiting for the Spirit to come is here simply referred to as the women. If you read through, friends, the books of Luke and Acts, you'll notice that God through Luke is very careful to show us something. That something is that under King Jesus, men and women are of equal value, worth, and dignity. Now today, we largely take that for granted, and rightly so. But in Jesus' day, things were pretty different. If we could update the terms and say it in a way that might make sense to us. In Jesus' day, women couldn't vote. They couldn't drive. They couldn't give testimony in court. They didn't go to school. They didn't sit under the religious leaders of the day. But Jesus undid all of that. Jesus received women into his group happily. It's, it's hard to describe today just how scandalous this would have been. Women are listed among Jesus' disciples. They traveled with him. They're called his friends. They helped in the work. They even served as benefactors, taking care of some of the practical needs of Jesus and his ministry. And so ladies, understand, whenever the scriptures are rightly taught, understood, and applied, You, sisters, will be lifted up out from under unjust treatment. This is what happens in the kingdom of God. You see, God made us level in Christ at the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are all equals, co-heirs, family within the kingdom of God. Amen? This is immensely good news. And Luke is careful to tell us that by including the fact that they were there. I love that about Luke. Now, this radical equality of gender does not erase all distinction between men and women. We are not exactly the same. There remains equality in nature and yet distinction of responsibility in the home and in the church. It's clear, for example... That when Jesus chose apostles, look at their names. He chose men. When Jesus chose, when God chose prophets, office of prophet in the Old Testament, he chose men. When God, through the Spirit, appoints pastors and elders today, he chooses godly, qualified men. This distinction in headship by husbands in the home and pastors in the church, in no way, however, is meant to diminish the beauty of a united church full of men and women as co-heirs in Christ. To say that equality must mean a lack of distinction is not biblical. We are brothers and sisters. We're family. We're equals. But we're not the same. I'm so thankful that Luke goes out of his way to point this out at such a critical moment in the history of the church. Now, let's take a minute to consider what this group did. As you look back over those couple of verses, what would you say is the defining action that Luke tells us this group took part in over that 10-day period of time? Yes. It's prayer, and it's a certain kind of prayer. It's united prayer. Beloved, I hope you won't breeze past that. The first activity we're told the new people of God took place in is prayer. 
is there a church in America that could rightly be described like that? We are so used to being able or thinking we're able to buy what ministry needs and that there are other things to do that are more important than prayer. How convicting this is. Luke is going to show us throughout Acts that one of the most important central activities in the church of Jesus Christ is prayer. United prayer. Notice that they were praying, quote, with one accord, end quote. What a lovely picture of Jesus' followers. Church, because we're united to Christ, we're also united to each other. Look around. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. And the connection that we have through Jesus Christ is the closest kind of connection. Because what's most central is the same for all of us. Because we have peace with God, you see, we have peace with each other. Now that phrase, with one accord, is going to become a a favorite description of Luke to think about the church. It's only used 11 times in the whole Bible. Ten of them are in the book of Acts. There's this sense of unity that is supposed to drive the ethos of the people of God. We have the same core fundamental convictions about life. We share the mind of Christ. There's this glorious disposition among the people of God that we are, in fact, together. This care and love and unity that describe us. So often when I meet people who are in the process of considering moving toward Church on Mill, joining and sticking for good until the Lord moves them somewhere else, and I ask them, what, what drew you back? Why are you deciding to stay? Almost every time, what people describe is the sense that these people are so different from each other and yet they are united together. I heard it multiple times over the last few days even. Brothers and sisters, because we're not all the same, we don't look alike, not from the same places, and yet we have this sense of unity. It is so powerful to people as they come in. Such an attractive part of the relationships we've been given. I think the best word to try and capture that sense is this togetherness that God has given us in Christ. It's that togetherness we've sought to capture in our newly adopted membership statement of fellowship as we've tried to describe what this looks like and feels like and what the habits of the church are, what it means to be with one accord. I hope, brother, sister, if you've already affirmed that statement, you won't simply think of it as a clicking of the box, the terms and conditions, and then you never see them again. I hope you'll keep a copy in your Bible and you'll read it often. It'll inform your prayers. It'll have an impact on how you think about using your time. If you've not yet affirmed that, I would encourage you to do so. There are copies on the black table in the back. You can sign it and leave it there. This early follower, following group waited and prayed, and they did so together. We would do well to learn from them. Maybe perhaps in the next week or two or even three, you could simply get together with a few other Christians with no other agenda other than to pray. In so doing, you would be like this first group, to pray. Think about what the content of those prayers may have been. Jesus said, wait, 
And then he left. And they waited. And they knew what they were waiting for, the Holy Spirit to come. So therefore, what can we assume their praying was about? They were very likely praying that Jesus would stay true to His Word. They were very likely praying that the Spirit would come. I think part of what's so confusing to us about prayer today is that it's easy to think, well, if God's promised X, then I don't need to pray for X. When in reality, because God's promised X, that is precisely why we pray X. Because by praying, God, will you fulfill your word, be faithful to your promises, demonstrate your character? What are we doing? We're reminding ourselves of the truth. We're submitting ourselves to the word. We're experiencing the character of God together. And in so doing, we are being changed. Take the time to ask somebody to get together to pray. I think you'll be encouraged if you do. Now, the next section in this great story, verses 15 to 26, recount how Matthias came to replace Judas. Now, I recognize as I say that, you move up to the edge of your seat. You are so excited, you can hardly stand it. This is one of those texts that feel like, okay, I know now what happened. But I hope today we'll find how essential and helpful it in fact is. Look with me if you would please at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Now, just an aside, I I wish we could do a whole sermon on that phrase. I want to encourage you to make a note of it and to get together with somebody else and to think through that, to talk it out in your small group or gospel community, to visit with whomever you're doing some mentoring with about it, because that defines for us what the Bible is. You see, the the Bible is written, is God speaking through the mouths of human authors. Incredibly important for understanding how the Scripture works. But for today, we must go on. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now you'll notice verses 18 and 19 are in parentheses. That's because it's not the story moving forward, but it's an an editorial explanation in case somebody doesn't know what happened to Judas. So verse 18, Now this man, meaning Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And every junior high boy says, I found my favorite verse. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, this is Aramaic, Al-Kaldama, that is, field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms. Now here's where Peter's logic picks back up. May his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, And Matthias, and they prayed, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you've chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, 
and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, I realize these verses may land on you as being incredibly boring, but I'd love to take a few minutes and try to explain the significance of what's happening. It is actually incredibly significant. Let's talk both about why it happened and why it matters. First, why it happened. Well, the choosing of Matthias to replace Judas isn't hard to explain or understand. The events are rather simple. The why is what becomes more interesting. Now, as Peter stood up to lead the group to replenish the 12th spot, his reasoning is apparent. The passage tells us why. Judas was allotted a share in ministry by Jesus as an apostle, but he defected. He quit. He deserted Jesus and his role as one of the 12. And therefore, if Jesus allotted each person some ministry, then there was a there was a chunk of ministry that wasn't allotted to anybody. So practically speaking, they needed somebody else. And yet Peter is careful to tell us there's more than mere pragmatism at play. Peter's conviction was that his Bible itself, what we would call the Old Testament, said Judas had to be replaced. Now, this is going to get interesting. Remember that after the resurrection, Jesus taught his followers to read their Bible in light of his death and resurrection. So, if you consider your Old Testament, that's the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through Malachi chapter 4, that... All of that, Jesus taught the disciples, is about Him. And as the apostles learned to read their Bible like that, they found Jesus to be all over the place in their Old Testament. Now, some of you have never known anything different than reading the Bible like that. Praise God. That's not how I grew up reading the Scriptures. And so perhaps there's another person or two like me in the room. And so let me try to fill in a little bit of the detail for you. This we might call fulfillment reading of the Old Testament is scattered throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. And so we're going to encounter this together over and over and over and over and over So I want to try to spend just a few minutes today explaining how this works. If you look closely at verse 20, you'll notice that there are two passages in quotations. Everybody see that? So the quotations are not marking, this is what Peter said, although it is, but they're marking that Peter is quoting from somewhere in the Old Testament. The first quote, Peter says, is about Judas. It says, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. How many of you have been to an Arizona campground and wished that about everyone else in the camp? All right, that's coming from Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Now, the second quote, Peter takes to not be about Judas, but to be about Judas's replacement. Quote, let another take his office, end quote. That comes from Psalm 109. So Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And in both cases, Peter's point is clear. Peter's saying, I believe those Old Testament Psalms are actually about things connected to Jesus. And his logic goes like this. Scripture said Judas would be judged for his defection, and he has been. Scripture also says Judas has to be replaced, and he needs to be. Now, all that's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, this 
the Scripture said had to happen, and it, it has. And the Scripture also says that needs to happen. So, 120, we ought to do that. Now, when you think about this at that level, it's rather simple. However, if you notice in your Scriptures that you see these uh, little A, B, C, and then it references that psalm, if you take the time to turn back and actually read the psalm, anybody ever done that? Okay? Used the cross-reference to go back and actually look at the psalm. If you do that, and you take it for what it actually is, then if you are anything like me, and please, dear God, help you not be, you will have all kinds of questions beginning to emerge. It feels like this. It feels like Peter went, it seems just out of thin air. It seems like Peter reached in a hat, pulled out a verse, and then made it mean whatever he wanted it to mean. If you just read the psalm, both of them, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, neither appear to have anything to do with the apostles in general or with Matthias in particular. So, can you make Scripture mean anything you want it to mean. It seems like that's what Peter did. But herein lies the problem. We are accustomed, even those of us who love Jesus and read our Bibles, we are accustomed to a superficial reading and an unthoughtful hurry. And in so doing, what happens is we miss the wonder, the brilliance, the color, the HD-ness of the passage. See, Psalm 69 is applied to Jesus or his followers nine times in the New Testament. This isn't a one-off. It happens repeatedly. And while both of those verses on the surface seem to have nothing to do with Jesus, when we learn from Jesus how to read our Bibles, we understand everything to ultimately be about Christ. You see, if you go back and read all of Psalm 69, and you read all of Psalm 109, you'll find that there's something incredibly similar, in fact, the same, about both Psalms. In them, King David describes himself as an innocent sufferer. He describes himself as one who's come under the hands of wicked people. He describes himself facing unjust hardship. He pleads with God to intervene and to bring justice. And he asks God to make sure those who are causing harm on him meet the consequence for their sin. Now, does that sound like anything to you? Friends, if we take the Bible in the way that Jesus taught us to read the Bible, then what we'll find is that David was the precursor to Jesus. And David's suffering, quite literally, David in his own hardship, was in a sense pre-enacting something of the hardship that Jesus would face. David's little sufferings were always intended to point forward to Jesus' ultimate suffering. The judgment on the wicked in the Psalms rightly applies to Judas as the one who caused the supreme suffering of the ultimate innocent one, Jesus himself. So far from being a random, cursory, surface misapplication, 
Peter is actually skillfully taking the whole psalm and putting it in a verse. You see, the, the experiences and writings of David found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. David, rightly understood, helps us understand Jesus. Brothers and sisters, carefully and prayerfully, all of the Bible is supposed to be read like that. Now, if that's new to you, then let me encourage you to receive it like perfume. Take a sniff. Don't swallow it. It takes time to get used to reading the Bible like that. This is one of the most difficult, complicated, complex, hard-to-learn-how-to-ride-the-bike kinds of theological skills. And yet, it is, in fact, how the Bible is supposed to be read. Now, I told you all of that to tell you this. If the New Testament church, the new people of God, the new covenant community, was to be the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had promised, if the church is to be the new Israel, then there must be great continuity between the two. They have to be not completely separate things, but the arrow pointing forward and the fulfillment. If that's correct, then they needed a twelfth apostle. Now, I fully recognize that that has not left you ooing and aahing and praising Jesus yet. But give me five more minutes. And let me try to show you the connection. God made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob way back in the book of Genesis that He would have a people for Himself, that they would be His people, and that ultimately there would be a kingdom that would never end. And that through their descendants, all the earth would be blessed. Jacob, the last of those three, had 12 sons. It's not accidental. The 12 sons became the heads, and through them, their descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 tribes for the most part, they lived in a cycle of obedience, then disobedience, then judgment, then sometimes repentance, and the cycle started over again. And because of that, eventually, God brought discipline upon Israel and Judah, and those tribes were scattered. Now, what's happening in the New Testament? Why is is this detail in the beginning of Acts? Well, it's because in the church you have the gathering back together of the people of God. You have the new Israel. That's why there had to be a twelfth person. The Appointment of Matthias as an apostle demonstrates demonstrates the identity of the new people of God as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So far from being unimportant and rather bizarre, what the author of Acts is telling us is that this new budding community is in continuity with and is in fact a fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. Now, why in the world does that matter? Well, my, my assertion to you is it matters way more than you might think. It, it doesn't matter simply for those who write theological books. It matters for the grocery store and the gas station and work on Monday and when you fight with your child. And when you feel alone and in despair. And how you think about what God's doing in the world today. And whether or not you can trust 
what the Lord has promised in His Word. It matters for all those reasons. The purpose of this story in our Bibles is not what is often described in the story. Many things I picked up this week used those verses to to give a rubric for how to make decisions. They said, read your Bible, wait and pray. And then they didn't know what to do with the lots. So ladies, let me tell you, single ladies, don't pick out two guys, put their little faces on some dice, roll the dice and trust that God's answering your prayer. That's not what this is here for. Now, casting lots in the first century and in the previous centuries was an acceptable way of deciding between a couple of things. I don't pretend I fully get that. But it wasn't that they were relying on random chance. It's that they were trusting that God was going to intervene. From this moment on, that as a way of making decisions never happens again. The story is not about what you do with dice or how to make decisions. That's a really weak rather pathetic way of reading your Bible. You know, there's a lot more here. What this is actually telling us is that the New Testament church is the people of the Messiah. That the the first two-thirds of your Bible and everything it promises, that that's now being fulfilled in us. That in the Old Testament, they, they were eating and living and experiencing yogurt. And in the New Testament, we got all the custard. We got the better thing. Right? You're getting tired on me or something. Custard is better than yogurt. I didn't know that needed more explanation. What God pledged before the cross and resurrection is now being experienced after the cross and resurrection. That's what this story is about. The Old Testament promises were were shadows. The New Testament fulfillment is the substance. And so what I'm trying to tell you, and it took a long time to get here, but here we are. This passage tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And that is immensely practical. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 27 says, I will put my spirit within you. Yes! Church, you already have that. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33, I will be their God and they will be my people. Yes! Church, you already have that. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Yes. Church, you already have that. Psalm chapter 130, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. Yes! Church, you're not waiting for that. You already have it. How do you know? Well, oddly enough, you know because of Matthias. The choice of the twelve points us to the reconstitution of the people of God under the king that will reign forever in which every good thing is now ours in Jesus Christ. Are we waiting for the the ultimate fulfillment of some of those promises? Yes, of course. But are we living in the reality that they are true today? Yes. Yes. That, brothers and sisters, 
is what this chapter is about. The twelve demonstrate that the promises of God have found their conclusion in the New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, how do you know that you can take God at His word? Well, Matthias tells you so. May we live as though He is true, for He is. Father, this is one of those passages where we just look to trust You, that what we've said is true, that of all the things that feel urgent that we wanted to hear about today and we haven't talked about, that this actually is incredibly practical, helpful, necessary, needed. Lord, I'm sure that brothers and sisters here this morning are struggling in areas where it feels like there's a gap between what you say you will do and what it feels like you've ultimately done. I imagine there's some here today who've internally resigned to you being trustworthy and they're just pretending. I imagine there's others who may be considering for the first time, can I really trust the promises in the Bible? Lord, we ask that you would now use your word to give life, encouragement, hope, and strength to people. And that this historical event of adding a twelfth would, in fact, be used by you to persuade us that all the promises in the Bible find their yes in Jesus Christ, and we belong to Him. In Jesus' name.